Chapter Thirteen of My Reminiscences by Rabindranath Tagore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen, My Father. Shortly after my birth, my father took to constantly travelling about, so it is no exaggeration to say that in my early childhood I hardly knew him. He would now and then come back home all of a sudden and with him came foreign servants with whom i felt extremely eager to make friends once there came in this way a young punjabi servant named lenu the cordiality of the reception he got from us would have been worthy of ranjit singh himself not only was he a foreigner but a punjabi to boot what wonder he stole our hearts away we had the same reverence for the whole punjabi nation as for bhima and arjuna of mahabharata they were warriors and if they had sometimes fought and lost that was clearly the enemy's fault it was glorious to have lenu of the punjab in our very home my sister-in-law had a model warship under a glass case which when wound up rocked on blue painted silken waves to the tinkling of a musical box i would beg hard for the loan of this to display its marvels to the admiring lenu caged in the house as we were anything savouring of foreign parts had a peculiar charm for me this was one of the reasons why i made so much of lenu this was also the reason why gabriel the jew with his embroidered gabardine who came to sell attars and scented oils stirred me so and the huge kabulis with their dusty baggy trousers and knapsacks and bundles wrought on my young mind a fearful fascination anyhow when my father came we would be content with wandering round about his entourage and in the company of his servants we did not reach his immediate presence once while my father was away in the himalayas the old bogie of the british government the russian invasion came to be a subject of agitated conversation among the people some well-meaning lady friend had enlarged on the impending danger to my mother with all the circumstance of a prolific imagination how could a body tell from which of the tibetan passes the russian host might suddenly flash forth like a baleful comet my mother was seriously alarmed possibly the other members of the family did not share her misgivings so despairing of grown-up sympathy she sought my boyish support won't you write to your father about the russians she asked the letter carrying the tidings of my mother's anxieties was my first one to my father i did not know how to begin or end a letter or anything at all about it i went to mahananda the estate munshi footnote correspondence clerk end of footnote the resulting style of address was doubtless correct enough but the sentiments could not have escaped the musty flavour inseparable from literature emanating from an estate office i got a reply to my letter my father asked me not to be afraid if the russians came he would drive them away himself this confident assurance did not seem to have effect of relieving my mother's fears but it served to free me from all timidity 
as regards my father. After that I wanted to write to him every day and pestered Mahananda accordingly. Unable to withstand my importunity, he would make out drafts for me to copy. But I did not know that there was the postage to be paid for. I had an idea that letters placed in Mahananda's hands got to their destination without any need of further worry. It is hardly necessary to mention that, Mahananda being considerably older than myself, these letters never reached the Himalayan hilltops. When, after his long absences, my father came home even for a few days, the whole house seemed filled with the weight of his presence. We would see our elders at certain hours, formally robed in their shogas, passing to his rooms with restrained gait, and sobered me in, casting away pan, footnote, spices wrapped in betel leaf, end of footnote. They might have been chewing. Everyone seemed on the alert. To make sure of nothing going wrong, my mother would superintend the cooking herself. The old mace-bearer, Kinu, with his white livery and crested turban, on the guard at my father's door, would warn us not to be boisterous in the veranda in front of his rooms during his midday siesta we had to walk past quietly talking in whispers and dared not even take a peep inside on one occasion my father came home to invest the three of us with a sacred thread with the help of the pandit vedanta vagish he had collected the old vedic rites for the purpose for days together we were taught to chant in correct accents the selections from the Upanishads, arranged by my father under the name of Brahma Dharma, seated in the prayer hall with Bicharam Babu. Finally, with shaven heads and gold rings in our ears, we three budding Brahmins went into a three days retreat in a portion of the third story. It was great fun. The earrings gave us a good handle to pull each other's ears with. We found a little drum lying in one of the rooms. Taking this, we would stand out in the veranda, and, when we caught the sight of any servant passing alone in the story below, we would wrap a tattoo on it. This would make the man look up, only to beat a hasty retreat the next moment with averted eyes. Footnote. It is considered sinful for non-Brahmins to cast glances on neophytes during the process of the sacred thread investiture before the ceremony is complete end of footnote in short we cannot claim that these days of our retirement were passed in ascetic meditation i am however persuaded that boys like ourselves could not have been rare in the hermitages of old and if some ancient document has it the ten or twelve year old saradvata or sarangarva footnote Two novices in the hermitage of sage Kanva, mentioned in the Sanskrit drama Sakuntala. End of footnote. Is spending the whole of the days of his boyhood offering oblations and chanting mantras. We are not compelled to put unquestioning faith in the statement, because the book of boy nature is even older and also more authentic. After we had attained full Brahminhood, I became very keen on repeating the Gayatri, footnote, the text of self-realization, end of footnote. 
I would meditate on it with great concentration. It is hardly a text the full meaning of which I would have grasped at that age. I well remember what efforts I made to extend the range of my consciousness with the help of the initial invocation of earth, firmament and heaven. How I felt or thought it is difficult to express clearly. But this much is certain, that to be clear about the meaning of words is not the important function of the human understanding. The main object of teaching is not to explain meanings, but to knock at the door of the mind. If any boy is asked to give an account of what is awakened in him at such knocking, he will probably say something very silly for what happens within is much bigger than what he can express in words. Those who pin their faith on university examination as a test of all educational results take no account of this fact. I can recollect many things which I did not understand, but which stirred me deeply. Once, on the roof terrace of our riverside villa, my elder brother, at the sudden gathering of clouds, repeated aloud some stanzas from Kalidas's Cloud Messenger. I could not, nor had I need to, understand a word of the Sanskrit. His ecstatic declamation of the sonorous rhythm was enough for me. Then again, before I could properly understand English, a profusely illustrated edition of The Old Curiosity Shop fell into my hands. I went through the whole of it, though at least nine-tenths of the words were unknown to me. Yet, with the vague ideas I conjured up from the rest, I spun out a variously coloured thread on which to string the illustrations. Any university examiner would have given me a great big zero, but the reading of the book had not proved for me quite so empty as all that. Another time, I had accompanied my father on a trip to the Ganges in his houseboat. Among the books he had with him was an old Fort William edition of Jayadeva's Gita Govinda. It was in the Bengali character. The verses were not printed in separate lines, but ran on like a prose. I did not even know anything of Sanskrit. Yet because of my knowledge of Bengali, many of the words were familiar. I cannot tell how often I read that Gita Govinda. I can well remember this line, the night that was passed in the lonely forest cottage. It spread an atmosphere of vague beauty over my mind. That one Sanskrit word, Nibritta Nikhunja Griham, meaning the lonely forest cottage, was quite enough for me. I had to discover for myself the intricate metre of Jayadeva, because its divisions were lost in the clumsy prose form of the book. And this discovery gave me very great delight. Of course, I did not fully comprehend Jayadeva's meaning. It would hardly be correct to ever that I had got it even partly. But the sound of the words and the lilt of the metre filled my mind with pictures of wonderful beauty which impelled me to copy out the whole of the book for my own use. The same thing happened when I was a little older, 
with a verse from Kalidas's Birth of the War God. The verse moved me so greatly, though the only words of which I gathered the sense were the breeze carrying the spray mist of the falling waters of the sacred Mandagini and shaking the deodor leaves. These left me pinning to the taste the beauties of the whole. When later a pundit explained to me that in the next two lines the breeze went on, splitting the feathers of the peacock plume on the head of the eager deer hunter. The thinness of this last conceit disappointed me. I was much better off when I had relied upon my imagination to complete the verse. Whoever goes back to his early childhood will agree that his greatest gains were not in the proportion to the completeness of his understanding. Our Kathakas Footnote Bards or Reciters End of footnote I know this truth well, so their narratives always have a good proportion of ear-filling Sanskrit words and abstruse remarks not calculated to be fully understood by their simple hearers, but only to be suggestive. The value of such suggestion is by no means to be despised by those who measure education in terms of material gains and losses. These insist on trying to sum up the account and find out exactly how much of the lesson imparted can be rendered up. But children, and those who are not over-educated, dwell in the primal paradise where men can come to know without fully comprehending each step. And only when that paradise is lost comes the evil day when everything needs must be understood. The road which leads to knowledge without going through the dreary process of understanding, that is the royal road. If that be barred, though the world's marketing may yet go on as usual, the open sea and the mountain top cease to be possible of access. So, as I was saying, though at that age I could not realize the full meaning of the Gayatri, there was something in me which could do without a complete understanding. I am reminded of a day when, as I was seated on the cement floor in a corner of our schoolroom, meditating on the text, my eyes overflowed with tears. Why those tears came, I knew not. Unto a strict cross-questioner, I would probably have given some explanation, having nothing to do with the Gayatri. The fact of the matter is that what is going on in the inner recesses of consciousness is not always known to the dweller on the surface. End of chapter 13 Read by Lambda